0: Hello, it's New Books in Urban Studies. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host, Yadong Lee, a PhD student in Anthropology at Tulane University. Urban Decay, Deindustrialization, and Gentrification of Phenomena more and more witnessed across the globe. The book we will discuss in today's podcast invites us to think critically about locality and urban neighbourhood revival. Based on two cases in Montreal, Canada, this book reveals how local heritage can be an agent of gentrification rather than resources, investigates how places acquire race and class identities, and also this book questions what is preserved and for whom. So I'm very excited to talk with the author of the book, Professor Stephen High. Welcome to New Books in Urban Studies, Professor Hai.
1: Well, thank you so much, Yidong, for inviting me.
0: I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about this fantastic book. So this new book, Deindustrializing Montreal, Entangled Histories of Race, Residence, and Class, is published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. Professor Stephen Hyde is Professor of History at Concordia University and the Center for Oral History and Digital Storytelling. Professor Hai is an interdisciplinary oral and public historian with academic interests in working class studies, forced migration, and community engaged research. Uh, so, before we formally start this uh, interview, Professor Hai, your research is definitely very influential in the fields of deindustrialization and working class history and also oral history. But as our audiences of New Books Network, are from very different backgrounds and from Mm -hmm. very various uh, disciplines, I think it would be helpful to let our audience to know more about you before our interview. So could you please introduce yourself to our audience a little bit uh, and especially what made you be interested in oral history and deindustrialization?
1: Hmm. Well, it's a great question. Um, I'm originally from Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is right on, on the north shore of Lake Superior, so not too far from Duluth, Minnesota. And it's a resource town, working class town. My father was a railway switchman, so he had the night shift until I was 16. Um, and so I grew up, uh, you know, in this working class context that was de-industrialized. You know, my father was... Um, was uh, a bridge to retirement at age fifty-one, so his working life ended uh, quite abruptly. Um, and oral history sort of came to me by by chance. I, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Ottawa. I left to go to university, and I came back home and I got a job <laughs> in my my hometown museum as an oral historian for a minimum wage, like it was really terrible money. But they gave me a Uh, an old cassette recorder and a bunch of blank cassettes. And they said, go interview old people. (laughs) And so I spent the whole summer interviewing people and I fell in love with the uh, methodology. Like, you know, that I, it sort of taught me a lesson that that history is not just up there, out there somewhere. It's actually in here. It inhabits our our families and our, in our communities and it's personal. Right. And so this is how I, I, approach uh the writing of history
0: fascinating i can see definitely your personal connection with your academic interest and basically i think you did really well to present your reader why history is basically from your heart from your mind Mm. rather than from you know something transcendent or something from higher level so definitely fascinating so as i mentioned This is a book with multiple topics and purposes. Um, I can see you talk about identity formation, class struggle, and urban issues like deindustrialization and gentrification. And you also uh, have many chapters reflecting on the revival program in the working class neighborhoods. So for a book with such extensive information as the author, what do you think this book is about?
1: (laughs) That, that's a hard question. It's like saying, you know, summarize your whole study in like uh, 20 <laughs> seconds. But I, it, it's a book um, about people and place. And it's about two places, uh, Point St. Charles and Little Burgundy, which are two working class neighbors that face each other across the Lachine Canal in in sort of the, the most industrialized part of, of Canada, um, uh, it industrialized early. And these neighborhoods formed around the factories. And and one neighborhood, Point St. Charles, is very white. You know, one neighborhood is is really the first multiracial neighborhood in Montreal. And so to me, you know, there's proximity there, but there's also divergence. And so it's an opportunity to, to think about class and race together. I think sometimes um, in the academy, it's like we're forced to choose, right? You know, we're going to study class, we're going to study race. And I think it's so, so important to think about these together. And so uh, racial capitalism is certainly one way that I, I bridge the two, thinking about how urban space is, um, is constructed through, through capitalism and through racial structures. Um, and so it's a, it, it's a deep sort of analysis of waves of change, right, and how these waves are connected and what this means for people.
0: Oh, I love your description. It's basically, I think in anthropology, we always use the word entanglement. And I think this Mm -hmm. book definitely perfectly shows how these different issues entangle with each other to present this deindustrializing Montreal. So um, basically oral history has a characteristic of being public. So I can see definitely this book is written not only for scholars, but also for broader public. So in your opinion, who are the expected audience of the book?
1: Hmm. I think everyone who writes a book you know every academic who writes a book you know hopes that it reaches beyond the academy right that um you know that we aspire to have a you know to make a difference in the world that we live in we certainly need (laughs) need to make a difference in in the world of, of today um and oral history is very much that way the ethos of oral history as a field is that um you know, we believe that, um, you know, we need, we should be working with the communities that we study, you know, not just treating them as objects of study. I know anthropology, it's, it's also, uh, in this mode now too. And, and, and so, and so, uh, the project very much sort of emerged, you know, in conversation, uh, with community organizations, uh, with, you know, my students who, who, you know, were, were coming out of these neighborhoods, um, uh, my my university, Concordia University, is only about uh, 200 meters from um, from uh, Little Burgundy, uh, one of those two neighborhoods, and so there's there's a proximity there, but it's also a distance, right? It's a little bit up the hill, although not way up the hill, um, and so and so and so there's that distance we still had to bridge, right? Um, and so, absolutely, uh, you know, the book was intended for a wider audience. Uh, and it's written um, for both an academic and a wider audience. And I think, I know you probably want to ask about the photographs, but, you know, it's it's heavily illustrated. I think, for me, these illustrations are important to bridge people not from Montreal into the neighbourhoods, But it's also a way to make the book more accessible to wider audiences. Um, You know, for, you know, this book has really resonated in these two neighborhoods, you know, in part because, you know, they see themselves, they hear themselves, and it helps, you know, make sense for what, you you know, these ways of transformation
0: definitely definitely i really want to uh, have more information of this uh, mm. fascinating pictures and illustrations because basically i think it strengthens the sense of interaction between the book itself between your text and also your readers your audiences fascinating we will talk about it later so mm. uh, the next question will be what prompted you to do this specific project like what brought you to these two specific neighborhoods in montreal why these mm-hmm. two neighborhoods yeah
1: yeah. well I've been studying deindustrialization since the mid 1990s. I'm I'm very interested in in sort of structural violence and how people um uh understand and respond to uh you know catastrophic change. And and my first book uh, coming out of my PhD was was focused on the Rust Belt, the making of the Rust Belt in the 1970s and 80s in the, in the Midwest United States. And I was looking at how unions and governments and Ordinary people sort of responded to that. Uh, later, I, I wrote books on sort of thinking about deindustrialization or, you know, uh, dramatic economic change sort of on the economic periphery. So like in resource areas, um, you know, forestry, mining and so on, which is, uh, you know, tends to be understood a little bit differently. This book is focused on a metropolitan city. And, it, and what's interesting is we don't necessarily think of um, deindustrialization in the context of big cities like you know New York or Chicago or uh, or Montreal, you know perhaps Detroit is the exception, right? Like Detroit is the you know poster child of of the Rust Belt, but generally you know deindustrialized cities are 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 often you know midsize or smaller, you know the Youngstown, Ohio's of the world, and so I you know so to me it was a natural progression combined with the fact that I, you know, I, you know, I moved to Montreal, like, you know, like most academics, it's a lottery in terms of where you where you land. And uh, so I landed in, in Montreal. And, um, and I moved to Point St. Charles. So this is also my way of researching my way into my new home, my adopted home to make sense of, you know, how I fit into these processes, right? I'm not removed from these processes. I'm, 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 I'm contributing to gentrification. Right. And I talk a bit about that book. Right. And so I think it's important for for scholars to, um, to position themselves politically in the work and to reflect on that, um, you know, uh, within the work that we do.
0: Yeah, I think it's really about how to build this connection between your academic interests and your everyday life. So mm. after this why question, we will talk about how question, which mm. I'm very interested in. So. I'm very interested in how you do this project because it's such a long-term project with a great number of participants and researchers involved. So much of this book, it's drawn from the oral history interviews of 150 um, residents recorded over a 35 years period. So how do you, you know, how your research focus and purposes changed over the course of this study? I think it must be some changes and what triggered these changes.
1: Yeah. Well, I, my, my part was only 15 years. Like there were archived interviews that were 35 years. (laughs) I didn't didn't start the project 35 years ago, but 15 is still substantial. And, and, um, um, like some projects are, are sort of linear, right? Like you, you, you jump right in and you, you know, you move forward and it's done within four or five years. Uh, this one, you know, was sort of a winding road. Right. And I didn't set out to, to write a book, um, so this book is a way is a is a culmination of many projects, right? Both research projects in various ways, like looking at um, you know uh, black youth. There was a project called Map Collab where we were thinking about how young people sort of you know think about uh, their neighborhood. You know, another project was on uh, labor mobility and um, sort of the post-industrial part. Um, you know, other project was focused on Point St. Charles. Uh, so you ha- I had many different research projects coming at it with you know in different ways, right? And so it, in a way, it's sort of layered or sedimentation, or my knowledge was sort of certainly sedimented. And then also the the, the teaching side. So I have you know gra- graduate students doing work, but also I, I I started to embed my courses you know into these two neighborhoods. So for example, there's the uh, Negro Community Center, which is sort of the cultural hub of the Little Burgundy community. Um, uh, for for the Anglophone Black community, and and it started in the 1920s, and it went until 1989, and then it was abandoned, and then the boxes were like salvaged, like 150 boxes, and then they finally were made available. Um, and so, you know, I embed my students in that archive, so the whole term they're going through these boxes, <laughs> and, and 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 so they're learning from the ground up, right? And and so they they develop projects and. You know, and so I, I do a lot of that kind of work where, where students are actually, you know, working with the, some of the archives that I've, you know, oral history archives that I've, you know, developed, you know, through these research projects, but they're also then contributing and writing their own work and publishing their own work. And so, and so it's, it's like the, well, it's like the Mississippi, right? Like it's slow. <laughs> it's, it's a slow kind of research. And I think, I think, you know, a lot is gained from, from taking your time.
0: Well, wow, it's fascinating. It's such fascinating to see how you actually combine this different project, but you actually turn them into a system. This book is really great work. And so basically, this book provides us, I think, in a systematic way with a cross neighborhood comparative history, focusing on two neighborhoods we have mentioned before, uh, Pontian Charles and Little Burgundy. So um, I have two interconnected questions. So first, could you please introduce these two neighborhoods to our audience? And second, why do you choose this specific two neighborhoods to explore? I think you have already answered mm-hmm. this question, but maybe you have more, like, more specific one like this whole cultural heritage or its importance to Montreal. I don't know, but yeah, very looking forward to hearing more about it.
1: Yeah, like I, I, I'm interested in sort of neighborhoods, not as like static containers of history, but how neighborhood itself is a is a process and is a product of history. And so the emergence of, you know, Little Burgundy uh, as a neighborhood is actually quite recent. Like you had, you know, you had na- you know, you had you had residential areas, and you had on on one side you had this place called Saint Henri, which is very francophone, white. On the other side, you had like the Irish, right, Uh, you know, also white, uh, with very strong neighborhood identities. And in between, you had sort of like this fluid space that, you know, with lots of names, right? You know, they call all kinds of things, parish names and all this. And it's only with urban renewal in the 19, uh, 1960s, right, when much of the neighborhood is actually demolished and rebuilt as as public housing, but not 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 the high rise stuff. It's actually very much like suburban low rise. Um, that that this name sort of stuck. It was actually the name for the urban renewal project that then becomes the name of the neighborhood. Um, and so, and so, you know, I talk about, like, why this neighborhood's targeted, you know, and I talk about how, like, the, you know, the uh, the emergence of a black community is very much tied, like, like, like you know, many, many cities in, in the United States tied to the railway. That this was the one, one of the few occupations that would employ black men. So by the you know, 1940s, 90% of black men in Montreal are actually working for the railway. And this neighborhood is very close to the two main railway stations. So there's a logic, right, to why why this, you know, why community institutions would emerge there, you know, why you would have like, you know, very much a multiracial neighborhood, like it's only about fifteen percent black um, at its peak before urban renewal. So that, that that's a little burgundy, right? So multiracial, a lot lots of stuff happening um, on on the south side of the Lachine Canal. So Lachine Canal is like, um, it's like the highway to the heart of the continent. So all the ships going to Chicago and Detroit and. Buffalo or my hometown of Thunder Bay Duluth you know had to go up the Lachine Canal right uh, you know it you know it's the way in and and it was it was replaced in 1959 by a bigger canal right on the other side of the river and so it became redundant and abandoned for for a period which is part of the story you know that I'm telling here because the, you know what happens to the canal matters for the neighborhoods adjoining but on the south side is Point St. Charles. And Point St. Charles is like Irish, right? Working class, very proud, right? You know, connections to Boston. Um, and and uh, on one side of the tracks, you know, there's tracks that split the neighborhood in half. The other half are, it's, it's French Catholic, right? And so you get all kinds of stuff going on there, right? And there's factories, like all on the canal. It's like wall-to-wall factories. There's factories sort of, you know, adjoining the neighborhood. And so these are places, like both neighborhoods are places where people walk to work. You know they shop in these neighborhoods, uh, they live in these neighborhoods, and so over time, over decades, that creates a very strong sense of place, right? Um, that 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 you know persists beyond the closures of the 1970s and 80s, right? And so the, this is, these 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 two neighborhoods, like they're fascinating, right? That and they really are windows into these processes that we see in every city, right? I'm sure you know any viewer of this show can can relate to this because you know they. You know, this is happening everywhere. Right?
0: Exactly. I live in New Orleans, and I can fully understand what you mean by seeing these fascinating urban neighborhoods and their sense of place is fascinating. And uh, basically, I think you have already told us about um, how diverse people here, people in this two neighborhood, and I think doing a research in this kind of neighborhood with high cultural and ethnic and um, class diversity, it must be a collaborative work. And this book is definitely an example of uh, a collaborative work, collaborative oral history. And I think there are multiple participants of, um, you know, to, for, for doing this research. So could you please tell us how people make this collaborative work happen and who has participated in the project and, had, and been benefiting from it and
1: in what ways? He's a great like questions of power. Right. I like guess yeah. this is it's hugely important. And and um, yeah. And so I, I, you know, I, I all the projects I talk about, both pedagogical and research are all done in collaboration with community partners. Right. So institutional partners in the neighborhood. So those students who are going through those archives, we're doing it, you know, uh, in partnership with um uh, the Black Church, so the Union United Church, or with the uh, the NCC Negro Community Center Board, and at the end of the term, they presented their research back to the community, right? And it was also a space for elders in the community to share their stories to the younger uh, generation. And so, and so to me, you know, these projects open up spaces for conversation and engagement, also, but also critical reflection, right? Like neighborhoods are not unitary. There, there's contestation. There's division um there's change um and uh and who you partner with matters right like you know yeah because it's like you know we can talk about community and what that means um but i'm very committed to uh to that kind of work and i think oral history is uh is a natural companion to that approach right because in oral history you know you you are learning with right it's dialogical you're going back and forth and it's you know a good interview is like two people working really hard to understand one person's life story and and i think a good project is sort of dialogical too right um and uh and so this project also had other uh, other outcomes like the book wasn't the only outcome like there's audio walks that um uh that people can do and we you know we link that in with the local like the neighborhood um libraries right so it's not intended it's not it's not starting at the subway right for people coming into the neighborhood it's 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 sort of anchored in the neighborhood you know so that people you know from these two neighborhoods get to actually learn about their own you know their own histories
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Do you have a website or do you have a, you know, something uh, like some viral material uh, introducing this project? You can send a link to me and I will put the link and, you know, just in our introduction of our interview and make more people to know about it.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, like storytelling.concordia.ca, it's our oral, oral history center's website. And there's a part oh. for like audio walks, right? I'm, I'm big on audio walks because like audio walks are, um you know, you hear and, and they're memory-based, right? So you're hearing people talk, you know, people's stories and so on, and and so you hear what was, you see what is. It's not the same thing, right? And so and so to me, a, a good audio walk is actually not immersive. It's actually it's actually about friction, right? It's about past and present sort of rubbing up against each other, which raises political questions, right? And, and I, you know, I think these two, you know, the two walks that we organize that we have uh, online for these two neighborhoods, I think, uh, contribute to that.
0: Okay. Okay. Definitely. I will mention it in our interview mm. introduction. Mm. and introduction. Let's talk about three keywords in this book, I think. So there are three interconnected processes repeatedly appearing in your book. The first one is urban revival. Second one is urban deindustrialization. And the third one is gentrification. So based on the case from Montreal, what are the relationship between these three words? Could you provide us with some concrete examples from book to explain the connection and difference between these three different phenomena?
1: Mm. And I probably, I would add a fourth one to that list, uh, suburbanization. And and because suburbanization is happening a little bit earlier, um, and in Montreal it's not so much about white flight; it's actually about middle class uh, flight, and um, and so you have uh, you have out migration in you know in the 1950s, and you can sort of understand why because until like 1970, 40% of the homes in these two neighborhoods were were cold flats, which means they didn't have running hot water. And so if you wanted to have like a hot bath right you had to go out put it into cans and bring it back or boil it boil it yourself there's all kinds of stories about you know communal bath water right and who got to go in first was important right um but and so people you know people you know if they could they would you know they would leave and and so, what happened in in the factories, these neighborhood factories that I was mentioning before, they unionize in the 1940s, right? They get, you know, the union comes in, you know, wages go up, standards of living goes up, uh, people are are able to purchase a car, uh, and that gives people options. And so, what you start seeing is, you know, in a way, the neighborhood and the factory sort of diverging, right? And so, the these neighborhoods start being left behind. By unionized prosperity, not just by deindustrialization, but you know, you know, their decline begins earlier, uh, and then and then urban renewal is a reaction to that, and then deindustrialization is happening at the same time, which is sort of like uh, the final nail in, in in the coffin kind of thing, where where really it's 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 the poorest of the poor that are left in these two neighborhoods, where like over half are on social assistance welfare. Um, where you have every social problem imaginable. Um, and so and so you have like divestment. So the factories, you know, start to close in the 70s. Um, you know, that leads to stores closing. That leads to churches closing. That leads to out-migration. Half the people leave, you know, so the population's going down. Um, you know, uh, schools are closing. Um, and so social divestment follows economic divestment. And so gentrification comes in, you know, starting in the 1990s, but really after 2000, um, where, uh, you know, like the, the property values are so low, and it, it's a central location, right in the city. And then you have the metro, like the, the subway going through. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's attractive. But what makes it really attractive is the canal. So the canal is abandoned in 1970. It's like a it's like sewer, essentially. Um, and 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 the government sort of has it. They're trying to figure out what are we going to do with this thing. Right? We don't need it anymore. We don't need the ships aren't going through anymore. What are we going to do with this thing, right? And uh, it's actually sort of like, you know, politics, you know, that decides. Like Quebec, you've got like a independence movement in the 70s where you know quebec wants to separate you know many quebecers want to separate from from canada and so the federal government decides at this moment 1977 okay we gotta respond to these people we're gonna plant a big canadian flag in downtown montreal by making this canal a park right with like biking trails and and walking trails and so this post-industrial this greening of 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 the canal actually flips the neighborhoods makes the make these these neighborhoods much more attractive uh, to middle class professionals right and that and that and that's a big you know big turning point and then you're seeing reinvestment but further further displacement so I'm not sure if that answers your question but that that's like a that's like a sketch of what's going on
0: I think is a fascinating explanation and it will be very helpful for students of urban studies and urban (laughs) history, I think. (laughs) It's fascinating. So, um, but before the urban, um, you know, deindustrialization, before renewal, before gentrification, first of all, we will have an urban culture. We will have a culture. Mm. We will have a sense of space. So this is what your first section is about. This first section is titled industrial culture. So let's talk about it. So you mentioned in your chapter one, A culture of industrialism was instilled in childhood long before young people went to work in neighborhood factories. And I'm very curious about how do this kind of culture and identity form in early years of childhood, particularly through storytelling, through narrative? Could you give us some examples?
1: Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, it's my favorite chapter, actually, the industrial childhood chapter. Um, like, oral history is really strong on childhood memories. They're very vivid. You know, it's a formative period for people, it's very local, you know, how people remember. Um, you know, our interviews were life story interviews, but we also did a lot of walking interviews where we we're walking the streets and people were talking about, you know, what this was or the story that happened there. Um, And so and so we have like hundreds and hundreds of these stories and you start seeing patterns right around, you know, a class identity doesn't start when you enter the factory gate. Right. Uh, It actually is instilled, as you're saying, right, right in childhood that people start understanding that they're you know working class you know you know at a neighborhood level right um and 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 so you have you know stories of of you know coming of age it's very gendered obviously too that that boy stories you know they're 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 more mobile you know uh, younger girls have of you know family responsibilities um and so this, they're talking and 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 these families have this you know there's a web of connection to these neighborhood factories right so you have you know it's like extended families it's like it's not like you know nuclear family one child we're talking <laughs> big families right with like extended extended and so you have you know almost like a block of like family members kind of thing and and they're all like working at different factories and so and so the divide between sort of work and and home isn't what it is today like it's not like this bifurcated thing that are you know two separate roles but it's actually you know woven together and and so deindustrialization is really tearing that apart right um now it's different within the black community because uh you know like montreal doesn't have like you know formal segregation like a lot of the united states had where you had colored only or white only signage but you had a a system of like de facto segregation right that um uh were certainly prejudice and racism and and so uh uh a black montrealer would never know you know you know going into say a store or a tavern hotel for the first time they never know if they'd be served or not because in canada you know uh there's property rights so the owners have the right to serve who they choose so, so you know went all the way up to like it was a case in 1936 uh fred christie you know he went to like the montreal forum which is like the shrine for hockey you know, canada hockey right like it's like a you know this is like this is like a shrine right there's a tavern at the bottom and he went to have a beer and he he was refused service and so he he fought back and he went all the way the Supreme Court of Canada saying, this is wrong, this is racism. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 this is property rights, it's not about race. And so he lost, right? Uh, and this was until the 1960s, right? Like he, you know, and so you had, um, so that, that, that reinforces um, black institutions, try, trying to create a, a safe space within, you know, a uh, context of, of hate and, and, and racism. Um, and because uh, you know these factories are not hiring black people, there's a disconnect, right? And you even see that in the neighborhood, right? So this 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 multiracial neighborhood of Little Burgundy, you know white you know white people, men on the block would be walking south towards the factories on the Sheen Canal. All the black men would be walking east towards the two the two railway stations. So even the daily rhythm of these neighborhoods. Is 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 racialized, right? Um, uh, based on 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 so sort of racial capitalism and what's you know what's going on there.
0: Fascinating, I think. I like narrative and stories because this shows us a very difficult, very complex entanglement of different forces in that today's world. because when we talk about, when we, you know, transfer a story to other people, we actually consciously or subconsciously replicate some existing power structure. Mm. So I have, I have a question about, about the culture of industrialism. Basically, when we talk about a culture of industrialism, what do we really talk about? Like in Little Burgundy and in uh, Saint House, what is the difference or common points of their culture of industrialism, and how do these factory stories shape their, you know, local residents' attachment to the neighborhood, and also play a role in shaping this culture of industrialism?
1: Well, these are great questions. The um well Raymond Williams is like, very influential in terms of deindustrialization studies. So he's you know he you know you know There's two concepts that are, are really foundational. Like one is is structure of feeling, right? Like how you have the sedimentation of uh, experience that creates values and expectations and horizons and sensibilities, right? And and so that, you know, that that that's very foundational to our understanding of what you know what's the impact of deindustrialization? It's not just about a paycheck. It's about it's about you know um, worldviews. It's about identity. It's about place. Um, it's you know much you know it's much deeper than just uh, and you know obviously the economic loss is huge, right? But it has a cultural and social uh, dimension to it. And so that that concept you know is really what's sort of organizing that first section, right? And thinking about how. You know, a structure of feeling is accumulated over time in a place, right? Uh, and how race, then, you know, you know how that differs uh, to some extent. And and the other key concept is moral economy. So E.P. Thompson, Georges uh, and I think I think you know, moral economy is really around again um, expected behavior of employers and so on. And I think these two concepts are. Are interlocking and 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 so and, and a lot of the British scholarship really you know really is foundational you know in terms of you know, in terms of those things uh, but power you okay. know power structure so like you know we our interviews were both in English and French the books in English but the interviews were in English and French and it's really fascinating interviewing people in French because you know when they're talking about work these are industrial workers you know you start seeing English words. <laughs> uh, you know, they you know, when they talk about the boss, right? You know, suddenly it's an English word or they start talking about like different departments, of the factory, that would switch to English. And the reason for that is that before the 1970s, um, uh, capital or employers were very, were Anglo, right? So sort of Anglo capital. And so bosses tend to be English. You know, workers were more, more likely to be French. So there's lots of poor, you know, poor Irish and poor, poor English-speaking people, um, and so and so and so. In a way, that that imprint of that former power structure is actually audible in the interviews, right? And so I talk about that too, right? And how um, you know, or even like within the neighborhoods, like French and English are you know are, are you know there's there's a shift in the balance of political power in 1970s towards French in Quebec. But before that, you know, the center of gravity was more English, you know, in the factories, but also on the street. Right. And so a lot of Francophones would learn um, street English. Right. Because, you know, that, you know, you know, that was sort of reality. Right. Um, and now it's you know entirely different.
0: For sure. For sure. I can I can imagine this kind of, you know, linguistic changes, linguistic transitions happening in Montreal. Because, you know, what people speak and how people speak and, you know, people speak in which condition is tightly connected to the current politics and a current, mm-hmm. you know, society. So basically mm-hmm. narrative is a very flexible and a very useful mm-hmm. lens for us to see all these transitions. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the second Section of the book um is titled Neighborhood Displacement, which means the waves of upheaval caused by deindustrialization, urban revival, and also gentrification. And we have talked a lot about uh, the transitions and the changes happening during the 1960s. And here, I think 1967 is a special year in the history of Little Burgundy. Um, So during the whole 1960s, a period of high modernism, several transformations happened here. And specifically, what happened in 1967 in Montreal, in Little Burgundy? And what changes did this transformation during, you know, the whole period of time bring about in Little Burgundy?
1: Mm. Well, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I came to this, you know, this part of the story with the expectation that Montreal would be like you know, like other places, right, that you see, um, you know, high modernism displacing, uh, you know, African-Americans in a in, in large scale in U.S. cities, right, that you see uh, also poor people, other poor people. Um, and I, so I sort of expected that, you know, because this is a neighborhood that gets demolished, right, and so it's targeted. And so I I said, Okay, well, they're targeted because it's, you know, because it's it's a multiracial neighborhood, even it's only 50 percent black. But, you know, it's targeted. Um, My research challenged that 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 theory. Um, And I was surprised. Right. Um, Because, you know, like you have it's happening in a context of, you know, Quebec, it's sort of the quiet revolution. So it's like, you know, this idea that. uh, the Francophone white working class was oppressed by sort of Anglophones for, for you know, and they're, you know, they're identifying with sort of, you know, Black Panthers and other, you know, anti-imperial or anti-colonial movements. Um, and so, and so you have starting in seven, you know, starting in the sixties, an effort to, uh, you know, lift up uh, white working class Francophones. And so what I found was, was, you know, like, you know, clear evidence that 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 from the government's point of view uh this was a a white francophone neighborhood and it was majority white francophone little burgundy uh and so it's racism because there's the erasure of the black presence right uh but in terms of why that neighborhood is targeted is actually about sort of uh Quebec nationalism. Now that said, you know the there's a disproportionate impact on the black community. You know, black community institutions are dispersed. You know, the community is dispersed. Um, a lot of black businesses that were based in that neighborhood uh, no longer had a place because when they when they rebuilt that neighborhood, uh, it's the highest concentration of public housing in Quebec. Uh, there's very little space for actually businesses, right? It's like a you know a bit of suburbs in the downtown. Um, and so those black businesses, you know, how to go elsewhere where, where they really struggled, right? And we interviewed some some people who told us that story. Um, and so and so and then afterwards, you got a you got a you got a high concentration of um, of public housing, which you know becomes a problem, right? It, like this is a, a part of a wider story, and there's not a lot of places for young people to hang out. Um, and so you start seeing, and you have an economic crisis, and you have a lot of job loss, a lot of, you know, family breakup, um, and so this becomes like, a, a, you know, headline news as sort of like Quebec's, you know, racial ghetto, um, and and this is a, you know, whereas before you you know the neighborhood was not only culturally diverse, it was economically diverse, right? you had middle-class people also living in this neighborhood and and so that uh, clear-cutting of the neighborhood had had a had a had a devastating impact right and eventually the neighborhood was able to organize and lift itself up and it's now you know a much better place um but uh but that government intervention was was devastating so I, so the book talks about about that story
0: okay so it's very related to the governmental uh, intervention into the two neighborhood. And also let's talk about a very, uh, another very important topic in the section two about industrial heritage. So actually in this book, I think you challenge, challenge a, conventional understanding of industrial heritage because normally we think industrial heritage will be very helpful for urban revival and will be helpful for empowerment of the local neighborhood but actually based on your oral history research you basically provide some different perspective so my question is how does industrial heritage function in depoliticizing the industrialization and gentrification, especially in Montreal, and also how do they play a complex role in these processes
1: mm. well i think I think you know what I see in Montreal I see you know in many countries right around industrial heritage, so there's this you know heritage is about recognition right so it's recognizing the industrial past but um in the context of, of the Lachine Canal like' it's Parks Canada it's a park it's 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 supposed to be about industrial heritage but the history it tells is a history of um shorn of any any division any any uh, of working-class people essentially right so it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a history that is very compatible with gentrification right so that you know what you start seeing in the 1980s um, our former factories being converted into condominiums. Right. And so, and so this is, you know, this is an interesting process itself. And we interviewed people who are moving into these, these former factories um, of being drawn to sort of an industrial aesthetic. But of course, these, these buildings are not what they were, right. They're transformed. So very much post, you know, post-industrial spaces that are very exclusive, right. That, that are, you know, you know, very expensive. And, and so you start seeing this band of industry along the canal becoming a band of affluence, right? A very high end condos. And then within that, you've got this industrial heritage recognition that, uh, is, is more just, you know, smoothing the change, right? It's a bit of like symbolic recognition, but, uh, at the same time as you're, you're basically appropriating you know, that history for, you know, for economically privileged people. Uh, and so I'm, I'm pretty tough <laughs> on Parks Canada uh, on this. And I I do think I do think it raises wider questions, right? Like who benefits from industrial heritage? Who's it for in the end? And so you can look at, you know, you can look at industrial heritage sites or 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 or. Uh, uh, Adaptive reuse examples, right, or culture-led uh, gentrification, and start thinking about. And then you start seeing, and you start seeing like developers like wrap themselves in the in the cloak of, uh, you know, I'm in favor of industrial heritage, while they basically convert it for, you know, for exclusive use. And so you you have one site left on the canal that's still a ruin, right? It's still like this abandoned building, and it's a, it's right now there's a big debate around it, like, and the community is saying. We want this, you know, to be social housing, like there's no social housing on the canal itself, right? That's only absolute space. We want this space to be for, you know, for ordinary people. And, you know, and they're saying with or without the building, right? The building would be great to keep the building, but it's more important that we are able to remain in the neighborhoods that, you know, we have this multi-generational connection to. Whereas the developers are saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll I'll preserve this building, right? But preserving what exactly, you know, and again, for who? So I think this actually
0: reflects that when we talk about industrial heritage, we need to situate it in the context of urban or urban politics of place. We need to, you know, contextualize it in very specific political context to talk about its benefits or, it, or the difficulties it actually caused to urban revival, to empowerment. And mm. this is exactly what the set section of the book talks about. It discusses how place-based identities have been mobilized to resist plant closing and gentrification. So in Chapter 7, you show us the case of a local activist organization And this organization hopes to mobilize local residents to resist plant closing. So why do they fail to achieve their goal? And what is the biggest problem with their narrative and other efforts?
1: Mm. Yeah. So that last section that you have that one chapter on Point St. Charles, one on Little Burgundy and thinking about like, um, you know, representational struggles, right. In the context of gentrification. And, and so in the context of, of, of Little Burgundy, uh what you have is the branding of the neighborhood as a black neighborhood right as you know tying it to oscar peterson tying it to oliver jones he's you know the jazz era right and and that's not coincidental right in the 1980s you know montreal's pivoting you know you know away from industry and towards being like an events you know event city and and the montreal jazz festival the largest jazz festival I, I, i think in the world although I think maybe New Orleans might have something to say about that. Um, um, you know so 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 in a way Little Burgundy's branding as jazz you know the jazz center uh, is important to the authenticity of Montreal's claim to be a jazz city. And 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 so this you know the neighborhood now has like murals it has you know Oscar Pearson murals it's got Oscar Peters park it's got Oliver Jones building it's got this and that everything's everything's jazz. And so and so and so it's now seen as a, a, you know, a black community, although it's still very much, you know, multiracial, but there's no there's no bandwidth in that sort of heritage remembering for uh other kinds of stories right whether it's about collective struggle right uh the fight against segregation racism uh whether it's uh the fight against factory closures you know all these all these other histories right are, are absent right and and so what you have is a very consensual comfortable narrative in little burgundy and so i talk a bit about that and what that does in in point saint charles it's it, it's it's sort of a different problem right and again i you know i, I it's easy for me to to sort of critique, but I and, and so Point St. Charles is known in Quebec as an activist neighborhood. It's, it's a neighborhood where, you know, the first community health center was created. It was the first legal uh, community, legal clinic was created. The first uh, social economy, like uh, first co-op housing development was in this neighborhood. And so it's like a strong activist neighborhood and it has a very, you know, as drawn people to move there, often middle class people who are activists, progressive people who you know a lot of anarchists for example and um and so this narrative of activism um i i i I talk about this one mural it's 80 meters long and it's an amazing mural like i i I walk by it all the time um and it basically is a celebration of like you know a, a village utopia, right and, and so in that in that 80 meters there's no there's struggle, but there's it's tri- it's a triumphant narrative, right as if as if they won all those battles when in fact you know Point St Charles today is uh, you know is, uh, is is heavily gentrified. you know many, many people are, are having to leave the neighborhood that they grew up in that their parents grew up in their grandparents grew up in because they can no longer afford the rent or or perhaps they inherited their house but they can't pay for the you know rising property you know property taxes um and so you even see like you so all the all the stores are you know are changing now they're upscale or even the schools um they because this was a marginalized neighborhood 10 years ago um you know school children would get like a a hot lunch for a dollar a day right and so that you know that was a hugely important thing for 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 all families all everyone was eligible for it, but especially for poor families and uh, that's gone right because because now the stats have changed you know and so and so it's actually harder now to be poor in the neighborhood than it was before uh and you are displaced you're no longer at the center of um you know of daily life and and uh and so and so that chapter is a different kind of silence, I guess, when you have like an activist narrative uh, that is about, you know, that's supposed to be about, you know, all the good fights, um, but then it becomes sort of like, you know, there's an erasure of like, you know, like the limits perhaps, right? Like, like, you know, like the failure to, you know, uh, to modify gentrification, but also the factory closures, right? Like there was very little response, political response in this activist neighborhood for all those closures. Right. Um, and so, and so, and so anyway, so I, I sort of think about that a bit. Sorry, I went on for that. I went on there a little bit.
0: No, no, no. I think it's really meaningful answers and it's really, Fascinating description of the current issue in, you know, urban activism and also about all these um organizations' activities in similar urban neighborhoods. So basically, I think when you highlight a story, when you highlight a narrative or a piece of history, some some other things, some other very important things mm-hmm. are consciously or unconsciously forgotten actually or erased so basically from the perspective of an oral historian what do you think in your opinion should activists do to transform all these memories or even silences into resources
1: yeah i think i think good research uh you know and good citizenship is is about reflexivity about being you know self-aware about reflecting on 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 you know on your practice right and and the limits you know maybe the the mistakes the failures we can learn you know more from the from our failures than we can from our victories and so that kind of honest reflection i think is is is, is vital for for everything right for activism for for research um and uh, and sometimes i think there's not enough space in in sort of uh, movement context for that kind of critical reflection uh, because you're you know you're, you're you're applying for grants, you're doing this, you're doing that. this you're so busy, you haven't you can't step back necessarily and look. Um, and oral history, too, I, you know, oral history is also about creating a space of reflection uh, where um, it's not even just the the researcher who has questions. It's like the person you're interviewing also has questions. So, so I think a good interview is like, you're you're it's, you're both chewing on this and thinking about you're thinking aloud together and and trying to grapple, like grapple with the uh, you know the full significance of of this history and I think I think that is what it's all about right um, that grappling with uh, you know with history right up to the present and I you know I'm a historian but I I believe fundamentally that we need to think about the relationship between the past and the present and uh you know and there's a danger if if you study the past you know and not up to the present that you sort of other it right that you remove yeah. it from the present and that can depoliticize right um like it's like parks canada one of my critiques of parks canada is that they stop in 1940 40 4045 right and and so you know their interpretation doesn't doesn't talk about all these all these waves of uh of uh, upheaval or their own implication in it and so and so there's this you know the safe distance right which then leads to sanitization you know there's there's a clarity in distance but there's also like a you know security for for a state to do that yeah
0: Thank you. Thank you. I think what you said is definitely based on this concrete and very specific experience in Montreal, Canada. But also, what you said is also have the value beyond the context of Montreal because you just remind us of of the importance of creating intersubjective dialogue between the past and the present, between the activists and the local uh, community and between different people and this is what is very important and valuable especially for oral history so it's very Mm. fascinating and Mm. finally i want to talk about the pictures and illustrations in your book it's really hard not to notice so many fascinating visual materials in the book we can see hundreds of photographs of the two neighborhoods and we can also see the pictures of the volunteers, the researchers who conducted the community-engaged projects. So going beyond the book itself, as an oral historian, could, could you let us know why viral material is crucial to oral histories, especially in de-industrialization studies?
1: Hmm, hmm, hmm. Well, oral history is one of the few, I think, um, fields of like qualitative research which actually believes in... Uh... Our, our our default is archiving the interviews, right? Like that um, um, like I think some disciplines you, you you tend not to name your interviewees, and 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 the danger with that is that you are you know, you have you hold a monopoly of interpretation, right? Only you you only we can only ask you about that. We can't ask them, right? Because you don't know who they are. Um, whereas in oral history, it's archive and. Um, and and so history has a face and a name and a voice, and and so these photographs, uh, the photographs of course are image worlds. You know they come with perspective. You know we have to think about where they come from. Uh, and so for example, there's like in the chapter on urban renewal, we have these state photographs where you know for every property that was expropriated, they have you know a guy in a suit holding a number. Often in front of people, like they're going inside the houses and outside the houses. They have as a thousand of these photographs, just a little burgundy of the of the streets they expropriate, and uh, and that tells us a lot about state power, right? And it also tells us a bit about social history. You know, you know these places. They're also going into taverns and workplaces or, um, you know, uh, uh, Canadian button uh, factory, uh. uh you know, there's you know there's probably a dozen or so photographs of always people at work, and they're all white in this in this multiracial neighborhood, which taught me again, you know, you know I think makes visible you know the exclusion of of black Montrealers. Um, so the photographs, you know, so you have photographs that are from the state. You got photographs that are um, sort of from um, some photographs that are from uh, you know corporations, you know, that are you know presenting themselves to to wider publics, but most of the photographs are actually, you know, community-based, right? That they are, you know, generated by community organizations or, or they're generated by interviewees uh, themselves, you know, family photographs and so on. And I think, and so I think they, they reinforce, you know, the, um, they, they add another dimension to, to to the stories that that you're reading uh, or listening to in the case of the audio walk. And so they reinforce I think, you know, this image world or this culture, you know, this culture of industry or industrialism. Uh, and so I'm a big fan of, 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 of you know, uh, photography helping to generate a, you know, a context, right, a get a sense of place, uh, you know, what this place was like, but also how it's changed, right? So there's also a lot of, not just historic photographs, there's also photographs, I worked with uh, David Lewis, who I worked with in the past. I did another book called *Corporate Wasteland*, which was on sort of the um, you know the 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 representation of deindustrialization and you know Detroit and so on. So I worked with him again, and and he was taking photographs of urban change, right? And I, I I'm amazed at how like a still photograph can actually capture movement, right? Where you see you know, the urban landscape transforming before you, right? Whether it's, it's, uh, condo advertisements, you know, whether it's demolition, whether it's ruination, um, uh, anyway, so, so the photographs are, are a big part of the book and, and, you know, it's, you know, the online version is great, but I think the paper, something about paper, <laughs> I come from a i come from like a paper mill town right so i i'm i'm, I'm biased on, on on paper but i think there's something tangible when you're going through and the feel of it um i love books right i always have and uh and so if you do get a chance yeah, you know, i might i think you've yeah you got the book right so I yeah, the book yeah, yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I need to tell our audience if you have opportunity and if you have enough budget you need to get it physical version is fantastic. You know, the texture and when you see all these pictures and you see it, you know, parallel with all this text, it'll give you a just, I think a different feeling. And definitely I'm also a lover of physical books. I think, you know, the electrical one is useful and is efficient and it's cheap, but you know, the physical one is fantastic.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And the price, actually, we were able to keep the price down. So it's about $50, which is, you know, expensive, but it's not. Sometimes you get these books now that are $150, which I think, you know, it's ridiculous, right? There's yeah. No reason for that. But I, uh, but yeah, like uh, we, we, we really, that was another thing that we, we did was we, we were able to fundraise and get money so that we kept, kept the price down. So that way it's, it's a bit more affordable, right? To, uh, to people's budgets, because um, yeah, they, you know, you can have a great, creative, you know, a great participatory process, and you end up with a book for one hundred and fifty dollars. You know, it's sort of uh, you know, sort of hypocritical, right? So, um, uh, you know I, I, I think the press did a did a beautiful job with that book, and uh, yeah, it's a labor. I think every book's a labor. Every author, you know, absolutely, yeah. But I, I, I you know, I, I published, you know, a number of books, and this is a particular. You know, this is a particularly, it's particularly true in this case.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think it's, I need to state, I need to note to our audience that this book is basically an integral part of your community engaged research, community engaged projects. So don't miss this chance, it's a fantastic one and the physical version is just good, it's so great. So yeah, love it. And as we are approaching to the end of the podcast, my last question is, what are you working on now and what is your plan for your future
1: projects? Hmm. Well, I have this big, so, I, I, so, so my next sort of dimension of my work is, is thinking about um, transnational approaches by scaling up, right? And so we have this big project. Uh, you can go to the website, deindustrialization.org. And it's, uh, it's sort of inspired by, you know, the rise of right-wing populism. You think of Trump or Brexit or the rise of the Front National in France. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of assumptions around the connection between, you know, deindustrialization and right-wing populism. Like, we you know, about the Rust Belt, you know, in, in 2016 in the United States. Um, and so what we're doing is we're, we're doing a, a study of Western Europe and North America with connections to also to China and to Chile. Um, and India, because it's a global story, to think about uh, deindustrialization and its politics, right? And how, uh, like, what's going on in these left-behind places? And, of course, Point St. Charles and Little Burgundy were left behind, but you did not see right-wing populism emerge in those spaces. And so it's interesting where it emerges and where it doesn't. Like Scotland, for example, uh, it's been a very... It's been very progressive in areas that have been deindustrialized, and so so we're interested in in that, and we're looking at also like gender and environment and and uh, and also heritage because you know heritage has a politics too, and and so this is a, a big project for uh, until 2027, and many books will come out of it. Uh, it's a big you know we got dozens and dozens of researchers and trade unions and. Uh, heritage uh like uh, museums and so on in germany and france italy u.s uh canada um so yeah that that, that's that's the next stage Then I retire, I
0: think. So. <laughs> oh, oh, I think it's super interesting. And it sounds like a very timely project for today's word. And today's, you know, this moment, basically, for pop to understand populism and all these important issues. So I would love to know more about them and have another interview on them when you have another book. Maybe before you're in, you know, in your retirement. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> your works are fascinating. So Professor Heitz, thank you so much for coming to our podcast today.
1: Well, oh, thank you so much, Elon. This has been a great conversation. Really enjoyable. So
0: <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's totally my pleasure. So in today's postcard, in today's podcast, we discussed the new book by Stephen Hyde, Deindustrializing Montreal, entangled histories of race, residence and class. Published by Miguel Queen's University Press in 2022. This book not only offers us two in depth case studies through making a cross neighborhood comparative oral history, but also bridges the literature on deindustrialization and on gentrification. If you are interested in urban history, oral history, working class history, or you are more interested in Montreal in particular, this book would perfectly fit your need. Thank you for listening to the Urban Studies channel of New Books Network, and we will see you next time.